Hey, what's up? Welcome to another episode of Going Deep with Aaron Watson. This episode, like all episodes of Going Deep, is brought to you by Audible.com. Audible is a massive repository of audiobooks that you can listen to while you're doing other stuff, make yourself more efficient. Uh, my big goal in 2017 is to read less articles and more books. And Audible helps me do that while I consume these books on the go. Just finished up the Undoing Project and currently working on Born a Crime, Trevor Noah's autobiography. Head over to audibletrial.com slash Aaron for a 30-day free trial and a free audiobook on the house. They have over 180,000 titles to choose from. Make sure you check that out. And also check out today's interview. I spoke with Isaac Saul. He is an editor for A+, the positive journalism enterprise from Ashton Kutcher. He was a previous guest in episode 17, and we went deep into the process of covering this crazy 2016 election. I tend to stay away from the politics, but Isaac is one person who I feel is both informed enough and balanced enough to offer some real perspective. He has some very strong opinions, and I think that you will learn a lot from the conversation and maybe some of our differing opinions on on how the media is shaping our political awareness and the elections and their outcomes. It was a really fun conversation, learned a lot, and I think you will too. So here is Isaac Saul. You're listening to Going Deep with Aaron Watson. the world ends just in case <laughs> you never know these days yeah so that is that's actually an interesting place to start i guess first of all welcome back to going deep with aaron watson you are the third repeat guest that we've had wow. so so pretty that's special um, select company thanks for having me man <laughs> i'm really glad to be here um but we are we're recording this at the end of december it's going to be out in mid-january and we've just kind of reached the culmination both of a year but also of in my lifetime, the most ridiculous election cycle <laughs> yeah. uh, that we've experienced. And I remember one of the biggest things from our last conversation was um, at that time, you were a pretty intense Bernie supporter and you were basically making a challenge to the, or made a comment to the, basically say he's a, kind of our last really good shot for a while. And uh, in, in general, you, you were covering the election and, and really taking some strong viewpoints, taking some kind of intense criticism and Twitter hate, which is, uh, you know, something that I'd say most people can have only experienced as an observer, as opposed to being someone on the receiving end of that. Um, So without (laughs) going too big of a question of what's up with this past election, I kind of want to get into just your experience of this really being in your kind of professional journalism career, the first really big election that you were covering and really having, I'd say, an influential voice in. Yeah, I mean, well, first of all, I'd say uh, I think anybody alive right now would say that this was the most ridiculous election that they had ever witnessed. Uh, Speaking to, you know, my parents, even my grandparents, people in my family who or older, I actually come in my, my family. There are a lot of uh, family members of mine who are very politically active. My grandparents on both sides were were really involved in politics all through their adult lives. Um, so I I, th- I think generally there's been a consensus that this has been in a lot of ways pretty unprecedented. There have been a lot of things that have gone into that. Social media, of course, is definitely one of them. I mean, we have access to information and news consumption and the commentary of pundits and the 
politicians involved in a way today that we really have never had before. Uh, so yeah, it, it was, it was pretty wild. I got to say, um, coming into the election, something that I really wanted to do was to try and have a voice that was distinguishable, not just for being, you know, an original thought or opinion, but for being sort of more optimistic or positive, um, and not sort of add to kind of the giant dumping garbage bin of, you know, just like everyone is just spewing hate and sort of partisanship all the time. Um, I don't know that I always succeeded at that because I got wrapped up in that partisanship too, especially with a candidate like Donald Trump, who I'm having a really hard time um, accepting as being like a reasonable choice for the leader of the free world. Uh, So, you know, it was, it was a really, really, really exciting time to be reporting on this, to be talking about people who were involved in the election. Um, definitely on Twitter, you know, was probably the place where I had like the, the biggest voice aside from like a, a few select blogs and opinion pieces that I published. And Twitter is a really interesting place because it is one of the few social media outlets that really gives you, um, both sides, I think, you know, I, I feel that conservatives would probably say that Twitter has a liberal bias, but I think it's really important to sort of like build a a group of people that you follow and that are following you that come from both sides of the aisle. And I have a lot of people that follow me on Twitter who are diehard Trump supporters. I have a lot of people who are more traditional conservatives that aren't crazy about Trump. Um, I definitely probably have a majority of liberals and Democrats who follow me and, and my personal views aside from the work that I do tend to, to skew progressive and liberal though. I think those things are getting kind of harder to find these days. So, um, it, it was, it was a big learning experience and I think I succeeded in, in kind of getting my voice out there and, and getting some attention on articles that I cared about. Um, but you know, it, it's going to be one of many that I'm involved with, I hope, uh, throughout the course of my life. And, and I, I certainly learned that it's important to know what you're talking about before you put something out there because, um, you know, it's, it's an unforgiving world. If you make a mistake, say something that's inaccurate, jump to a, a conclusion that proves to be incorrect. Um, you know, people remember and you get, you get backlash about that. And, and that has, has been something I've seen happen to other journalists and other reporters and news networks in general. And, um, I've been really cautious about, you know, sort of biting my tongue until you see the evidence on a lot of things. I'm curious to ask, so not only you mentioned the stated goal of trying to inject more positivity into journalism and and media in general, um, and that aligns with A-plus's goal as well, but I'm curious how that is received in terms of, you know, it seems like inevitably anything that's posted out there will create some controversy if it's getting any sort of attention. Is that positive spin to things something that has created backlash to some degree or another? You know, it's it's hard because uh, sort of the A-plus motto, our slogan is positive journalism. That's like w- what we strive to be. But uh, as it turns out, and as anyone who thought about it for three seconds could figure out, positivity is a subjective thing. Uh, there are certain ideals that we have to stand behind as a publication and sort of draw a line in the sand that, you know, we say this thing is good, this thing is bad, which is hard when you're trying to be a positive news outlet for everyone. So, You know, for instance, there are a few things um, that I I don't it's not like spoken about that. This is like the line in the sand. But I think uh, as a whole, our editorial staff sort of falls on a certain side on a few major issues in the country right now. One is that um, 
we believe that climate change is real and that it's human caused and that it needs to be addressed. So we might write an article and publish an article on A+, under the label of positive journalism that's about environmentalism or, you know, a new law that's going to reduce CO2 emissions or Barack Obama just this week signing, bringing, bringing back a, a bill that was about 63 years old that is going to essentially ban drilling in, in the Arctic and the New England Atlantic region for an indefinite period of time, something I'm not sure that Donald Trump's going to be able to undo. And to me, that is a positive story because it's government working to protect an ecosystem, uh, federal, federal lands, federal waters that, that need to be protected from sort of the exploratory drilling that's happening right now. So the backlash is usually when we touch on those kind of hot button issues. Um, gay marriage is another thing. We, we are like an LGBT friendly publication. We have LGBT writers on staff. So certain advances in in the fight for marriage equality you know we we covered that supreme court ruling pretty vigorously a couple of years ago and that's something that we is subjective obviously to some people that that was a positive thing but it's a line in the sand that we've sort of without talking about have have made the decision that this constitutes positive journalism because we see that it's having a really positive effect on the lives of people who have otherwise been kind of, you know, disenfranchised by, by our country and our system. Um, so usually that's where the backlash is, is that like you're a positive news website, but you're spewing like this liberal whatever. And I think that's a lot of people's gripes with the media these days is that they feel that certain publications right to partisan lines or that the media is generally liberal bias, which I happen to believe is a complete and utter myth. I think that's, am I allowed to curse on this show? Hell yeah. I think that's fucking bullshit. Uh, I think it's, it's one of the great lies that has been perpetuated by the right that the public has bought. I think that it's, it's sad that so many Americans believe that, believe that the, the mass media, I mean, first of all, it's impossible to find the media, but to say that the mass media, that CNN, that New York Times, that Washington Post has a liberal bias, it, it just completely ignores the incredible amount of damage that those news organizations have done to the Democratic Party, to, to progressive agendas by exposing fraud, by exposing backdoor deals. For instance, you know, one of my new favorite things to ask people who say that to me or who bring that up to me on Twitter or in person or social media or at the bar or whatever is I always ask them, do you know who broke the story about Hillary Clinton's private server? And they say, I don't know. You know, some of them have guessed Fox News. I saw it on Fox News, you know. No, it was the New York Times. And it it was maybe one of the most important investigative journalism pieces of the year that, that it came out. And it drastically affected the election. Obviously, every American in in the country heard about Hillary Clinton's emails pretty much every day for the entire election cycle. And that was a story that the New York Times broke and published. And yet they are seen as being shills for Hillary Clinton or something when they essentially sunk her campaign. Politicians and the media should be adversaries. They're not meant to be friends. So there are things that have happened that WikiLeaks exposed that were clear violations of this kind of public trust we have in the media where they're going back to sources and asking them, oh, is this okay? You know, you were quoted saying this. Are you comfortable with us publishing this? Which there's a line where you want to fact check and then there's a line where you're giving someone an opportunity to walk back comments that were controversial when they made them in the moment. And that line is blurry and small sometimes, but it's a really, really dangerous thing to step over. So I understand where some of the fear and animosity comes from about 
the the so-called liberal left-leaning mass media mainstream media press whatever you want to call it but um you know it's a it's a total fabrication i mean the the most watched news channel in the world's fox news which is decidedly right wing yeah and and just to unpack this even further because this is such a big topic we could be here for hours mm-hmm. but the the notion of how media is changing and you know the mainstream media moniker is in many ways an artifact of the past when the channels for distribution of information were monopolized by a few companies. And what will be cited is, well, these six you know, major conglomerates own how, whatever percentage of the media gets thrown out there. But in this conversation, we're talking about A+, we're talking about WikiLeaks, two organizations that, you can correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think existed 10 years ago. WikiLeaks did, I believe, but... But, uh, but not much long. Not right. Yeah, relatively new. That long of a history. And it seems as though there's more and more players who, to some degree or another, have the ability to not just impact elections, but impact social awareness and impact the information that's going out there. And as this continues to fragment, this connects to another thing that you said, which is the kind of spectrum of progressive versus conservative or this really kind of binary view of where people stand politically is also fragmenting. And you have more and more cloistered sects of the population with different collections of beliefs. So when you you think about that and, you know, simultaneously A-plus has a large following, you have a large following, but in the entirety of the hundreds of millions of people who just consume news and are paying attention to the United States, it's it's a drop in the well in many cases. Right. How do you see this fragmentation affect like are are you an optimist as it gets the opportunity for more stories to be reported and gets more you know, we're we're getting back I guess to the positive journalism side of things, but how is this positively affecting us and do you think about the potential negative ramifications of this fragmentation of media? I think it's positively affecting us in a sense. First of all, no, I'm not optimistic. I think that uh, it's really frightening. I think it's a hundred percent scary to me that places like Infowars are, you know, publishing articles that are being the, that are becoming the most shared articles on Facebook. You know, things that are just blatantly untrue or or conspiracy theories or are are like you know investigative pieces that have been published without any kind of foundation or platform of journalism ethics of fact checking of uh, an editorial totem pole where like a story is going to go through three or four editors like it might if it were published here or at the new york times or at washington post and and they're putting out stuff that's scarily untrue that that frightens me when i read it um because i know so many people are seeing it so it's it concerns me very deeply uh that so many americans are taking their news from sort of like these offshoot and it goes for both sides it's not just Infowars, which um tends to publish a lot of crazy right-wing stuff it's also the far left the daily costs websites like that that um are, are, are pushing out liberal propaganda that's sort of like, you know, is always race baiting and, and, you know, making conservative politicians look like they're, you know, satanic or something. Um, but to me, you know, there is, there is a small thread of hope or positivity in it in that it's engaging more people in politics. I think more Americans are consuming news and political news now, especially in the wake of this election than at any time before. I mean, I don't have any numbers to back that up, but from talking to a lot of journalists and family and friends who have been alive longer than I have, uh, it feels like people are looking at the highest positions in the White House 
and the highest positions in government with more scrutiny and more frequency than at any time before, either because they're scared or encouraged or because, you know, Donald Trump is uh, the ultimate publicity man and, and he's turning politics into a little bit of a reality TV show, which on one hand is scary and sad and hollow and empty. But on the other hand, uh, you know, a lot of people like reality TV. And if this is what it takes for Americans to, to step up and be engaged and care and vote and inform themselves, then, you know, long term, I think it could be a, a really good thing. But the biggest thing is that, you know, the whole fake news conversation and it's it's some some of the most shared articles, some of the most read articles from the election are stories about the Pope endorsing Donald Trump, you know, stuff that is just completely fabricated from nothing, totally untrue. That's published on the guise of being like a legitimate website, either by using like abcnews.co instead of .com or something. Uh, and people are finding loopholes to, to get their information out there. And yeah, to me, it's it's more scary than anything else. But that's not to say that, you know, um, there aren't some positives that might come out of it. Yeah, it's definitely a weird time in terms of just the vast amount of media that is out there to consume. And there's the feeling sometimes when you'll either fall across some Twitter conversation or some thread and you're like, I didn't even realize this existed, you start to pull at it and you realize it's this five hour deep dive of research to unpack, which right. a lot of people aren't willing or desiring to do. Uh, but one of the most optimistic views I've ever heard was actually from the venture capitalist Mark Andreessen. And his point uh, was basically that with the unbundling of different media institutions and a greater perhaps onus or responsibility falling to an individual journalist as opposed to the institution that they were tied to meant that not only would people be able to kind of self-select and really hone in on those who are doing the best journalistic work, but those kind of what you see in what attracts people to entrepreneurship in the startup environment of really being able to see greater compensation and greater recognition for good work outside of my article got a bunch of shares, but people through either micropayments or other financial transactions being able to really support the people who are doing the great journalistic work where, you know, after the selection, you saw a bunch of people sign up for ProPublica memberships and other um, reportedly, you know, non-biased, very, very rigorous investigative journalist institutions that being able to basically be condensed further and further to individuals and small teams. So that leads me into a question just about how you've thought about your individual brand as a reporter, as a journalist, as a media entity. And you know, we've talked about these Twitter engagements. We've talked about the alignment of values that you see in working with A+. And you were an early employee here that saw it kind of come from nothing to an existing entity. How do you think about the development of your brand and how you get your voice or your influence in front of more eyes, in more ears, and uh, and be the change that you want to see in the world? Yeah. I, I, well, I want to just comment on one thing that you said about that philosophy about the fragmentation of news, which is that there was like an expression you used sort of like loyalty to the institutions that people are writing for or whatever. And, and again, I think that that is part of this larger kind of frightening myth in some ways that reporters for the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal or whatever are somehow beholden to the people that own 
these news publications. Yeah. I think in instances that might happen, but it is extremely rare. I mean, I worked at Huffington Post for almost a year. This is a company owned by AOL, Verizon, whatever. Um, I, I never published a story that got run up to the top, you know, and I wrote a lot of controversial stuff there. And there was never a time when, like, something that I wrote had to be run by a certain person or whatever, you know, or some. Um, what I was, what I was maybe saying, maybe I miscommunicated, was more the idea that when, when something, when a story, when like a story was misreported or a retraction had to be made, it was the New York Times making the retraction or the Rolling Stone or that entity, as opposed to someone being able to say, "Well, this is like the fifth. And I know this hasn't happened to you, but like the fifth thing that." Isaac Saul has had to retract this year and uh, feeling a little bit more closely tied to their individual responsibility for journalistic okay. integrity. Yeah, yeah, I see what you're saying. Um, yeah, and that's that's definitely an interesting nuance of the business where, you know, you are responsible uh, or, or, or when you're writing something for a publication like the New York Times, you are responsible for sort of their their track record and that stuff like that slips through the cracks on an individual basis, but it may, you know, expose some kind of greater flaw about a publication as a whole. Uh, To answer the second question, you know, I think my thoughts about my brand or the A plus brand or or how to sort of have an effective space um, in like, as you put it, this giant sea that we're kind of just like a drop in the well of is fluid. Really. Uh, it, It changes all the time, which probably isn't, ideal and that that might be something that experts on branding yourself say is not the best way to approach it Uh, i can't imagine that you know being inconsistent about your brand or what you're putting forward is beneficial but the truth is that you know you find things that work and you find things that don't so you know for a long time for instance this is a great example actually and totally relevant because it happened this week i was very much one of the people that was really antagonistic on Twitter, that was kind of like my, my go-to thing, uh, because not just because it was a good way to get people's attention, but because oftentimes, uh, you know, to get someone who has a huge following or, or like a big name politician or celebrity, whatever, to respond to you, um, being overtly and obviously contentious towards them is a good way for the people who share your disagreement to, you know, favorite and retweet and like what you're saying and bring it up to the top of that person's feed in a way that sort of forces them to either ignore it or answer it, which is an interesting thing to see how a lot of people handle that. Uh, you know, I, I have push notifications on my phone for one person and it's Donald Trump. Uh, and I did that about a year ago when he was early on in his candidacy because I always recognized him as being the strongest and most dangerous candidate because um, he was he's a pro at, at playing the media, at playing the press, at publicity. And he was a totally new, fresh kind of face and voice in the political spectrum. And you can put any kind of connotation you want on that, negative, positive, whatever. But that simple statement is true. We, we've never seen a Donald Trump before, period. Um, so what happened was is when I would reply to some of these tweets or be the first person to answer some of these tweets, a lot of times my, my following would grow or, you know, people would argue with me and I could have a back and forth with other journalists or other conservative talking heads who are reading through the comments on Donald Trump's thing. And maybe they try to, you know, correct or make a snarky comment back at what I say. And it opens up this volley that people can witness. And for a long time, I felt like that was a good way to sort of, grow my following or or be this like, you know, uh, 
a, a, a liberal Twitter martyr or something and just kind of like <laughs> get out there and, and really le- and, and say what I was thinking. But, you know, I work at a company that's founded on positive journalism. And this week, actually, yesterday, uh, we had a all company meeting with um, our, our new, the people who acquired us, Chicken Soup for the Soul, which has a brand that really coincides with ours a lot. Uh, they've obviously published some of the most inspiring feel good stories, you know, America has ever seen. They're one of the first people to really crowdsource anything, which is an interesting little caveat of, of what they do. You know, they started in the early 90s by taking in user submitted stories before that was like, you know, how some platforms completely run now, especially in the digital age. And our CEO handed out hats to everyone that said, make America kind again. And I loved it. Make America kind again. You know, it's, it's sort of like this subtle, you, you know, sort of shot at Donald Trump. But I think more than anything, it's a reminder that we've really have gotten to a place where it's hard to have a conversation with someone effectively without making a comment that's like snarky or, you know, it seems like the interactions that I witness on social media, almost all of them immediately devolve into like a a law back and forth where people are trying to just like win the conversation. Um, And what happens when people are trying to win in anything really is that you sort of stop being kind. So I got this hat and I was thinking about it, you know, it's like sitting in my lap or on the train ride home from Connecticut where the chicken soup headquarters are. And it just struck me like, is it like, am I living up to that ideal? Am I being someone? And it's interesting because on Facebook, I actually tend to have a really, soft approach with people when um I, I and some of my friends have even messaged me privately and been like i don't know how you have this conversation <laughs> with someone without like completely losing your shit you know and the truth is it's hard sometimes you have to take a breath when someone's saying something that you really feel is either offensive or just so wrong or completely lacks the context of whatever you're talking about and i've been good about that on facebook but on twitter i'm always just like very like i'm gonna take the best shot i can in 140 characters So I pinned this tweet to my profile last night that said, I'm going to start trying to be kind to people on Twitter. And I hashtag make America kind again, which hasn't taken off, but that's okay. Give it time. Yeah, maybe next year. (laughs) Uh, And, and, but that's going to be a real goal for me. Uh, And even today I found it like totally difficult. Uh, Newt Gingrich, who tweeted out, (laughs) I mean, I don't even know. I don't know how to describe. I mean, what I want to say is maybe the most pathetic Twitter video I've ever seen in my life. But he tweeted out uh, this apology for saying that, um, you know, he had said earlier in the week that Donald Trump was abandoning the phrase drain the swamp, that he didn't really like it very much. Someone close to him on the transition team had told Newt that, uh, you know, he was sort of leaving this drain the swamp thing behind, which raised a lot of eyebrows because one of the big criticisms of Trump since he's been elected uh, and has built his cabinet is that a lot of the people he's brought in are I'm just quite literally the people that he campaigned against either hardline Republicans that are you know the essence of Republican conservatism that have been around for decades or Goldman Sachs executives or like the crony capitalist elite who are cutting deals with you know Russian oil companies and stuff I mean these are the people that he spoke out against for most of his campaign. So he got a lot of criticism. You know, there were a lot of jokes about draining the swamp when you're really kind of filling it. So then Newt said this and everyone jumped on it like, wow, is, 
Newt Gingrich like showing the cards now. So he posted this video today apologizing clearly uh, in the wake of a phone call that he got from Donald Trump and, and was just very sheepishly, you know, saying, I'm sorry, you know, I, I goofed. Uh, I got a call from the president-elect this morning and, um, you know, drain the swamp is very much in. That's a part of his his policy. And I was wrong to say that it wasn't. And and I, I sort of like retweeted it and just said, it, you're making it really hard for me to be kind on Twitter right now, because what I want to do when I see that my my like gut knee knee jerk reaction is just to blast off a series of tweets about what a sellout, cheap, you know, spineless person Newt Gingrich has turned into, which in my heart of hearts is kind of how I feel. But what does that do? You know, and and thousands of other people are doing that already. I mean, the whole the top comments on on the tweet are all just people being like, oh, daddy called and gave you a spanking, huh? You know, and like and it's like, you know, I don't need to add to that chorus. And I think more Americans should should think about if they're just adding to that chorus, because if we're all saying the same thing, it's not effective. And and something that I tried to do on Facebook more with, with my friends and with political opponents and whoever is, is to have the conversation. Because if this election proved anything to me, it's that Americans aren't talking to each other the way they should be. They're not talking to people that disagree with them the way they should be. Uh, and I think I'd been kind of something approaching exemplary about that on Facebook. And on Twitter, I'd been basically the opposite. I used to say, you know, you can follow me on Twitter if you want to see me tweeting angrily about America all the time. Um, but I just had this sort of aha moment when I got handed this hat, like, am I really living this? Am I really doing it the way it should be? And the answer was just completely no. (laughs) So, uh, I'm trying to change that. And I think that that is a space for my personal quote unquote brand, um, that, that I could really build on because I don't see other people doing that. I don't see other partisan commentators. I don't see any pundits at all really making an effort uh, to, to be friendly and cordial and, and just decent and kind to the other side. I think Trevor Noah did it with bringing on Tommy Lauren, who I think, you know, runs Facebook videos that, that are just totally riddled with kind of latent racism. And I thought it was a, a really, really courageous thing for him to do. And I thought that they had a great conversation and she came on and she handled it beautifully and he handled it well. There was some criticism about, you know, normalizing a lot of her ideas, which I get, but I think that that conversation has to happen or else, you know, liberals are definitely not going to get what they want if we keep sort of just like shooting insults down from the rafters. It's just never going to happen. That's a really important point. And I think, I mean, for me, that was probably the most interesting, I mean, outside of the literal results, um, like the most interesting piece of political content that I consumed in the last couple months. And I think that, you know, one of the things that I saw was a lot of people after the results of the election talking about how do I diversify the media that I'm consuming? And you spoke to, there's almost like these two different sides of you where I have the the way I handle things on Facebook, the way I handle things on Twitter. Um, I've, I've been very conscious of trying to bring in a lot of different viewpoints on Twitter. And, that, and Twitter's a really good place to do that just because of the density of what you're consuming. But I'm curious about if, if there's people, I, I kind of want to create some actionable steps for people in the wrap up. If people are looking for either sources of kind of differing opinion that they can follow, but more importantly, I'd say arenas where there can be nuanced, healthy, productive conversations 
as opposed to kind of what you were saying before of like the gotcha devolving to let's win this argument. Where have you found or where have you been directed that you found the best source of these type of conversations? I I think sort of the point is that they're hard to find and they exist seldomly across platforms and that the best way to be a part of those is by creating them yourselves yourself uh, I, I see some people post on facebook you know where they 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 have a lead up or a preface to like a political statement that they're making that they say like i'm not looking for some contentious you know cat fight argument in the comments i'm looking for real legitimate informed opinions people who are interested in like you know figuring this out or, or talking it out and i believe Donald Trump has the worst conflicts of interest in the United States history. And then there's a conversation that happens and that works. I mean, approaching people by, I, I guess personally, I found two things work really well. One is that almost every comment someone makes it, regardless of how divisive or even, you know, racist or controversial or mean spirited it is typically and in what I found almost 100% of the time rooted in some kind of reality that that person's living. So acknowledging that first to start is a really good way to communicate with people. You know, um, I think a good example of this is like talking about immigrant crime. A, a, one of the most, you know, fundamental platforms that Donald Trump won the election on was this idea that immigrants were hurting the United States, that undocumented illegal immigrants were coming here, you know, the whole like bringing us our rapists and murderers and whatever, but also selling drugs or running amok in neighborhoods. And the liberal response to that, the progressive response to that from a lot of major politicians and a lot of talking heads was this conversation is completely unethical and the way that you're framing this conversation is disgusting, deplorable, racist, whatever. And there's some truth to that. The way that he framed the conversation was, in my opinion, completely disgusting. But what didn't happen in that conversation was they didn't talk about and the liberals and progressives didn't address the fact that there are hundreds of thousands of undocumented immigrants in the United States that commit crime. And there are thousands of them that commit violent crimes. And there are hundreds of them, maybe more than that now, who have felony assault or maybe even homicide charges that are in the United States right now and not in jail. That's something Ted Cruz said uh, a few times on the campaign trail that didn't get a lot of news, didn't get a lot of fanfare, but it's true. They're, they're, you know, because there's a lot of processing that goes into deporting someone. There's a lot of legal action that goes into that. The court system is, you know, historically and almost laughably to a point slow and, and inefficient. Uh, despite some of the amazing things our judicial system has done. And we didn't have that conversation about, yes, you know, there, there are illegal immigrants that are here. There are undocumented immigrants that are here that are committing crime. And we do have to do something about making sure those people don't, you know, terrorize a neighborhood. Uh, and you can have that conversation while also conceding the fact that, or, 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 or pushing the fact that, you know, Immigrants commit less crime on average than natural-born U.S. citizens. So you can say, yes, it's true. Immigrants are here committing crime. There are also millions of non-immigrants who are here committing crime. And all of those people committing those crimes are bad. And they're not bad or worse because, you know, a a, a U.S.-born murderer is not morally more bankrupt to me than an undocumented immigrant murderer. 
they are both equally fucking horrible, <laughs> right? Yeah. And that's like a very fundamental thing that every American should be able to grasp. And that conversation wasn't happening. It was because Trump went so far right. And he went so far in that like, you know, jaded kind of thing, which a lot of people on Facebook and social media do now. They, they make a comment that's intentionally supposed to rub you the wrong way. And so your natural response is to, you know, come back with something like, oh, really? Well, fucking white people who were born in America commit crime at higher rates than immigrants do. So shut your fucking mouth, you know? That's what you want to say when you see that. But that's not helping anything, you know? That's not bringing some kind of consensus. So what I say when I see that kind of stuff is, you're right. I think it's really important that, you know, we find a way to address immigrant crime, especially crime that's committed by undocumented immigrants. And we need to build a system where we can get those people out of our country quickly, cheaply, and, you know, protect the citizens of the United States who shouldn't be subject to, you know, some kind of like horrific violent crime from someone that's here without papers. That's totally reasonable. That's something progressives should be able to say out loud without causing a huge backlash. I'm not sure that can happen right now. But then you say, listen, uh, you know, there are also millions and millions of millions of undocumented immigrants here. Maybe, you know, 10 million of the 11 million or 10 and a half million of the 11 million uh, who are are doing everything in their power to just give a life to their family, you know, who are fleeing either wars overseas or a drug war in Mexico that has killed hundreds of thousands of people that are here because they see this American dream, this traditional version of the American dream that's achievable that a lot of Americans strive towards. Uh, And the DACA recipients in the country are a perfect example of that. The kids who are brought here um, as undocumented immigrants when they were younger and and Obama pardoned them. And, you know, the hundreds of thousands of people that he did that for, you know, respond by going and getting the degree or starting a company. And because they're not fearing deportation, they pay their taxes, they report crime in their neighborhood when they see it, you know, and and they do it without fear that they're going to get in trouble themselves and they become more productive, inclusive, valuable members of society. And that's what we should be trying to get to, you know, a, a, a consensus that is built on data, but is also built on this kind of moral high ground, you know, like, like what, what can we do as a country or what can I do as a citizen that is like the absolute high road? How can I be like, in my best judgment, the most like morally generous, kind and, and sort of like respectable, friendly person, welcoming person? I think... I don't see why that can't be a, a general goal for all Americans, you know? Absolutely. And I think that another thing that is really striking me as well is the movement from what I, I would say was used to be held as almost like an exclusively right ideal of like, we are the nationalistic. And you can even say like part of this election was this kind of nationalistic movement, but that is bringing a nationalistic viewpoint from the left, which is something that we weren't always necessarily hearing as well from our media members. Yeah. So. Thank you for that. And thank you for coming on the show. If people want to inject a little more kindness into their Twitter and Facebook feeds, where can they find you? Uh, I am on Twitter at Ike underscore Saul. And that's sort of where like, you know, the larger 5,000 followers or whatever, as you mentioned, a drop in the well. Uh, Keep up with me and definitely 
where you will get the highest quantity of political commentary. I'm on Twitter most days, tweeting more frequently than I'm, than I'm posting anywhere else. Uh, you can also follow my author page on Facebook, which is uh, Isaac M. Saul, or you can just look up Isaac Saul, S-A-U-L, on Facebook. And then on A+, on our website, I publish my column, A Grain of Saul, every Tuesday. And that has been, you know, that, that, that column is specifically built around the idea of writing with sort of hope and optimism about whatever our country's facing. So if that's something you're looking for, um, I, w- I would definitely ask you to check it out and share it and do all that great stuff because um, it always helps. Fantastic. We'll be sure to link to that in the show notes at goingdeepwithaaron.com slash podcast, the place you can find the show notes for this and every episode of the show. Isaac, thank you so much for coming on, man. Thanks for having me, man. Great to be here. We went deep with Isaac Saul. Hope everyone out there has a fantastic day. Hey, thank you so much for listening. Once again, head over to audibletrial.com slash Aaron to get that free audiobook and 30-day free trial of the program. I am loving it so far here in 2017. Know you will as well. And I'm also loving these great guests that we continue to have on the show. Make sure you head back and check out our recent interview with Robert Scoble, the tech evangelist and blogger who is screaming about the future of augmented and virtual reality. You'll get a lot smarter from that conversation. You'll also learn a lot from our forthcoming conversation with Tom Corson Knowles. He is an expert in self-publishing, a multi-time best-selling author on Amazon and has just a lot of practical advice that has led to him living a pretty sweet life over in Hawaii. A lot to learn there and in every episode of Going Deep with Aaron Watson. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks for listening. Connect with Aaron on Twitter and Instagram at AaronWatson59.